I want to say good morning. My name is Brett, and I serve as one of the pastors here. And you may notice that, that a bunch of kids are not jumping up right now to beat me to the punch and run to their classes. That's because today's Family Fifth Sunday. And so every time there's a fifth Sunday in the month, our kiddos stay with us, our preschoolers and our elementary kids. They stay with us through the entirety of the service. And it also gives our volunteers a much needed respite as they serve faithfully back there week in and week out. I don't want to just say welcome kids and let me encourage you to, to be listening today and even be ready to ask your parents questions after the service. You're welcome here and I personally am glad that you're here. We're going to go ahead and, and jump in this morning and I want to ask a question. It's a question that I think applies to all of us. And the question is this, have you ever hoped for something to happen? Have you ever hoped for something to happen? Maybe it was for a new job or, or promotion. Maybe you hoped for a child or a spouse. Maybe you hoped that your team would win the big game or even that your candidate would, would win the election. If you're being honest this morning, maybe you just hope that tomorrow will be better than today. And the reality of it is, is that, that we all hope for things. We all long for things. We have desires that have not yet been fulfilled. And that's the reality of our hopes, right? It's not guaranteed that they will be fulfilled. If we hope for a job or a promotion, it may not come. If we hope for a child or a spouse, it may not come. <clears throat> and honestly, if we hope that tomorrow will be better, maybe in God's providence it won't be. And so we know that as we hope for things in this world, we, you know, we're really saying that we wish for something to happen. We wish for something that we don't yet have. But again, the reality of it is, is that our hopes may come true or they may not. However, we're going to see today in our sermon and in our text that there is a hope in the universe that's beyond certainty, a hope that we can have complete confidence in, even in the midst of our other hopes that we can't have confidence in. This hope that we're going to look at is going to surpass all of our deepest longings. If you missed last week, we are in a very short two-week series on Romans 8. Pastor Chris worked through the first 17 verses <clears throat> last week, and in review, he proclaimed six great realities that you're going to see on the screen again. Pastor Chris proclaimed that there is no condemnation for those in Christ. God has done what the law could not do. Setting our minds on the Spirit is life and peace. We are in the Spirit if the Spirit dwells within us. We are debtors to the Spirit as God's children, and suffering will give way to glory for all of God's heirs. If you haven't listened to or even watched part one last week, let me encourage you to do so later today. I know it will bless you as, as you hear God's word exposited. Today, I have been given the task of looking at part two of this two-part series, the second half of, of Romans 8, verses 18 to the end of the chapter. Before we do that, let's pray and ask God to bless the reading of his word. Father, we, we do now ask 
this thing, that you would bless your word. We know that your word is authoritative and sufficient for all life and godliness. Lord, we know that your word is powerful and that it enacts change. And so we ask for these things now, believing that you will do them. Amen. I've divided our passage this morning into four parts, and I'm going to give you all four parts right now. Number one, we're going to consider the hope promised. Secondly, hope guaranteed. Third, we'll look at hope planned. And finally, hope secured. This entire passage that we're going to be working through this morning, this this glorious chapter, the greatest chapter ever, ever written, is designed in this section to give us assurance of hope. Assurance of hope. Let's go ahead and read our first section. You can follow along on the screen. Also be in the the Pew Bibles in front of you, page 1,122. This is the word of the Lord, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Last week, Pastor Chris concluded with verse 17, right before our passage, and it reads, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The amazing reality is that suffering gives way to glory for all of God's children. Suffering gives way to glory. But the reality that we find ourselves in this morning, 2023, is that the children of God, we ourselves, have not yet reached glory. We look around us and we see death and decay. Things don't work the way they should. There's strife and war. There's hatred and vitriol. There's suffering all around us. If you're new to Christianity this morning, the way that you see the world, it wasn't always that way. The Bible says that God created the world and everything in it good. He says that the first human beings, Adam and Eve, they were created very good. There was harmony and peace and tranquility between God and man, between man and man, between creation and God, between us and creation. There was not a broken relationship to be found. But then sin entered the world. Our first parents made the fatal error to not trust God and his love for them. They disobeyed the creator and plunged the world 
into darkness. And God, we see in Genesis that God responded as a just judge would. And he handed out a sentence. He declared that Adam and Eve and all their progeny, all their descendants would die. Maybe slowly, but surely. And not only this, he decreed that the entire created order would bear the curse of God. God subjected the world to futility because of Adam's sin. Adam and Eve were meant to rule the world with with loving dominion and order, and yet their actions cast the world into chaos. God's verdict was clear and his verdict was, was resolute, but here's the amazing thing, and it's the first point of our sermon. His verdict was not without hope. His verdict was not without hope. You see, when God cursed the world, he did it with redemption in mind. With redemption in mind. He subjected the world in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. He subjected it in hope. In this chapter, the great chapter 8 of Romans, Paul is not trying his best to be a revisionist historian here. He is hearkening back to the very truths that we find in the very beginning of the Bible. In Genesis 3, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And listen, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This freedom that we see in Romans 8, this freedom from bondage, this freedom from sin was secured by our great head crusher, Jesus. The great skull crusher who on the cross paid the penalty for our sin. He defeated the great enemy of our souls, the one who deceived our first parents, Satan himself. And here in our text, Paul wants us to have trust and confidence that even as we see a creation that groans, even as we ourselves groan and await the redemption of our bodies, that our present agony is not the complete picture. Think about that. Our present agony, our present sufferings are not the complete picture. God subjected all creation in hope that one day glory would come. Our sufferings are giving way to glory. Verse 17. Our sufferings and our groanings are leading to adoption and an eternity of bliss. This broken world that we all live in will one day be restored to a greater state than even the garden. Now, we don't yet see this. This hope is not yet ours, and so we wait, and we are patient. But unlike so many of our hopes and our desires that we have as human beings, this one will surely come true. 
God cursed the world in hope that redemption would come. And so we see that our hope is promised. Kids, he will cause all the sad things to come untrue. Our hope is promised. Now, this alone would be cause enough for our assurance of hope, would it not? The fact that God has promised that our hope will come true. And yet, in his kindness, God gives us even more reason to hope. Let's consider our next part of the chapter, starting in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. In guarantee of our hope, as we consider hope guaranteed, God has given us his Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, There is perhaps no greater guarantee of our hope than the fact that the Spirit of God dwells inside of us. In another great chapter, Ephesians 1, Paul says this about the Holy Spirit. In him, Christ, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. God guarantees our hope. He guarantees our inheritance by dwelling with us by his spirit. Now, despite this, the spirit of God is often relegated to obscurity in in many Christian circles and, and much confusion in others. But there is no more important facet to our Christian life than the work of the Spirit of God. You may ask, what, what role is he playing? What, what role is he, is he performing in our lives? We saw last week that in the first half of Romans 8 that the Spirit is helping us to put to death the deeds of the body, to put to death those earthly desires that still remain deep, deep inside of us. Not only that, we we saw last week that the Spirit of God is bearing witness to our souls. He's giving us assurance that we are children of God, that we are heirs according to the promise. And in our text this morning, we see another glorious example of the Spirit's help. The Holy Spirit is interceding for us. As we groan in this fallen world, the Spirit of God is identifying with our sighs and our groans. He helps us in our weakness. He intercedes for us according to the will of God. You may ask, what does that look like? It's a great theological truth, but what does that actually mean? Again, we saw last week that we as Christians have received the first fruits of the Spirit. The first fruits. But, again, we have not yet reached glory. Our frailty and our infirmity is present. And honestly, it's sometimes all too present in our lives. 
And this weakness manifests itself in many ways in our spiritual life, including prayer. Jesus taught his disciples that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Paul echoed very similar words when he called on the churches to unceasing prayer. And yet, in our feebleness, we do not know what to pray for as we ought. We sometimes don't know what to pray for, and even if we know what to pray for, we have difficulty expressing it, do we not? We are weak, all of us. But God, this morning, would have us not lose heart. The Spirit of God is indwelling every believer and aiding our prayers. One commentator writes, you'll you'll see this quote on the screen, we can be assured that even prayers marked by our finitude, our ignorance, and imperfection are amplified, purified, and intensified as the Spirit identifies with and goes to bat for the believer struggling and perhaps groaning in prayer. Additionally, John Piper says this, it's very helpful, when you feel very weak, Because of suffering or decay or sickness or futility or persecution, failed plans, baffling decisions, don't despair as if God is angry with you or at your inability to know what to do or what to pray. At that very moment, experience the wordless groanings of your heart as groanings for the glory of Christ and trust the Spirit of God to intercede for you about the specifics. Trust Him that because He's praying for you, Your Father will bring about decisions and circumstances that will magnify Christ in the best way, in the very midst of your ignorance and groaning. The Spirit is the guarantee of our hope. He knows the will of God perfectly. Why does He know the will of God, kids? Because He is God. And so He knows the will of God. And so we can trust That our prayers, however weak they may be, however ignorant they may be, however hard it is to express them, that they are helped by the Spirit, and the Father hears exactly what we need. Before we move on, kids, I want to show you a book right here. It's called The Holy Spirit. There's a lot of things that the Holy Spirit does in our life other than, than interceding for our prayers. And I've got three copies of this book that I'm going to put out here on the stage for for three families. And so after the service, kids, encourage your parents, or maybe they'll just send you up to grab one, okay? There's only three, but you can read through this with your parents to learn other ways in which the Spirit is aiding us in this life. So I'm going to put them right here, grab all three. Let's see, put them here. Put this one right on display. Lovely. Okay. The Holy Spirit. This is part of a a bigger series called Big Theology for for Little Hearts. There's six books in the series, and it takes big theological truths and helps kids to understand them in a way that they can. So I would highly recommend this set. So we see that our hope is promised, and we see that our hope is guaranteed. Third this morning, we see that our hope is planned. 
our planned hope. We see that the hope of redemption that we all long for and groan for was planned long ago. Let's continue reading our text, starting in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. If we are in the greatest chapter ever written, these are some of the greatest words ever written. Christian, are you here this morning struggling to believe, struggling to hope in the midst of your circumstances? God is causing all things to work together for good in your life. The sufferings, the groanings, the pain, none of it is in vain. He works all things for the good of those who love him. The dark circumstances that we may find ourselves in, they're all filtered through the sovereign hand of God. And so we don't lose hope, even though the whole world may be falling, around, falling apart around us. We do not lose hope. You may ask, what specific good is God doing in my circumstance? That's a question I think that we, we all ask ourselves. Now, it can be very difficult to perceive what exactly God is doing in this circumstance or that circumstance. And very rarely are we going to see exactly what God was doing this side of eternity. But here's some things we do know. God is saying, especially verse 28 here, God is saying that all things work together for good. Work together for good. He's not saying that, that all things that happen to you are good, or in that the case of some horrific evil that you experience that there's some silver lining if you just find it, and maybe it'll make it a little easier for you. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying if, if you could zoom out, you would see that, that God is using all the circumstances in your life to produce that which is pleasing in his sight. What is pleasing in his sight? A man, a woman conformed to the image of Jesus. It's an often used illustration, but the threads of a tapestry or a rug, if you look at them from the underside, they're confusing. They're not pleasing to look at. It's kind of hard to figure out what the purpose is of the layout. But as soon as you turn the tapestry to its proper side, you see that the picture is quite beautiful. Is that not what God would have us believe this morning? That all our circumstances, while they may seem unpleasant, while they are unpleasant, they are working something beautiful. Church, you can trust that, that all that your life entails, whether the seemingly insignificant details, the triumphs, the defeats, even the sin in your life, all of it is working together for your good. Only God could do that. We see that, that God's plan for us is beautiful, 
But here, as we continue in the text, his beauty is not just in, in how things work together, but that, that he purposed our good long before any of us existed, long before the world was even created. Christian, you can have hope for the future because he foreknew you long ago. He, he directed his thoughts to you and to your life long before you were conceived in your mother's womb, as we read this morning. He knew you. He didn't just know of you. He knew you personally. You can have hope for the future because your life with Christ was destined to happen. There was never another possible future for you. What do we read in the Psalms this morning? In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Your hope in Christ was destined for you, Christian. God plans your hope. You can have hope for what lies ahead because God called you. He, he called you out of darkness. Don't forget that. He called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He gave you eyes to see, ears to hear, and to repent and believe the good news. You can have hope because you've been justified. You're innocent in the sight of God. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Case closed. If you fail tomorrow, God's verdict doesn't change. No condemnation, full justification. Perhaps most beautiful of all as we consider this plan, one day you will be glorified. Your final salvation at Christ's return is so sure that Paul is so bold to say that God glorified you glorified, not will glorify, even though that is the chronological order. He glorified you. It's done. It's complete in his mind. It's going to happen. Foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified, the unbreakable golden chain of redemption, some call it. Our hope was planned and so we can have hope in the present as we look to the future. We've seen thus far that our hope is promised. It's guaranteed by the Spirit's work in our lives and that it was planned from all eternity. Again, what else needs to be said? What else can give us assurance of hope than these three great realities promised, guaranteed, planned, Again, God in his kindness gives us even more reason to hope, even more reason to have assurance. Let's read our final section. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? 
as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our hope is secure. Our hope is secure. In this last section, Paul asks us a series of questions that at this point might as well be rhetorical. If God is for us, who can be against us? Answer, no one. If God gave us his most precious son, how will he not give us all the lesser things? He will. If God has declared us guiltless because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, and at the same time, Jesus is interceding for us in heaven as the God-man right now, if that is true, who's able to condemn us? Answer, no one. Not even the great accuser himself. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? What will separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. What about tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, the sword? What did we read last week? Our suffering gives way to glory. We are more than conquerors. We're hyper-conquerors. That's literally what the Greek's trying to communicate. We're hyper-conquerors. Not just conquerors, hyper-conquerors. Wait a minute. As we were reading this text, some of you caught that Old Testament quotation in verse 36. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul's quoting Psalm 44, specifically verse 22. But why does he quote this verse in the midst of this passage, this amazing passage of God's everlasting love? If you read the, 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 the continuing portion of Psalm 44, verse 23, the psalmist says, Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. In the midst of your suffering, do you ever feel that, that God is not there? That somehow he's hidden your, his face from you? You know, we've all been there, or we will. Where are you, God? Why do I feel so isolated? Why do I feel like I'm alone to dwell in solitude and darkness? Rise up, O Lord. Have you separated me from your love? William Cooper, he was a poet from the 1700s. He was a close friend of John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. Cooper struggled to feel God's presence and his love for him most of his life. He struggled with depression, and yet with, with eyes of faith, Cooper wrote some of the most precious hymns that we have today. There is a fountain filled with blood. 
and God moves in a mysterious way. I want you to listen to the words from, from God Moves. It's, it's number 73 in your hymnal, and so I'm going to pull out my hymnal, and I'm going to read from this hymn. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. What a beautiful hymn. Church, you, you may not feel God's presence even this morning as we gather, but he's there. He's never left you. He's never forsaken you. He's not rejected you. He's not forgotten you. He's doing something. He's doing many things in your life. And so don't be tempted to believe that somehow God's love is fickle and easily gone. Nothing will separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing. Not even death. For the Christian, death is not the end. It's the beginning. Not the principalities that we read about. Not the powers in the spiritual realms. Yes, we sang this morning that Satan's power is great. But Jesus disarmed him. Put him to open shame by dying on the cross. Triumphing over him by his blood. Will the future separate us from God? When anxious thoughts begin to take hold of, of the future and what might come, remember, God is working all things together for your good. All things. The worst things that you fear that will happen in your life, even if they do, God is working it for your ultimate good. There is nothing that will separate us from the love of God Nothing that's going to take our hope away. Our hope is promised, it's guaranteed, it's planned, and it's secured. Again, this whole passage and the greatest chapter ever written has been designed by God in his kindness to give us assurance of hope. We have so many reasons to be hopeful. The redemption of our bodies the intercessory work of the Spirit in our lives, the working of all things for our good, the unbreakable chain of our salvation, the unceasing love of God. Even while we groan in this fallen world, there's hope. We may be weak, we may be frail, we may desire strength, and yet there's hope. Our circumstances may be undesirable, and we wouldn't wish them on our worst enemies. And yet, even if our circumstances are dangerous and even deadly, there is hope. Our suffering is present, but our hope is permanent. You know, this calling that this passage has placed on our lives is clear. Christian, in this world, you will face tribulation. You will face suffering. But what does Jesus say? Take heart. I've overcome the world. 
Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. We don't know what tomorrow is going to hold. We're not omniscient. We have no idea what tomorrow will unfold. But we do know that we live in a, a world that where, we wear, where, where we will experience suffering. It's inevitable. And how we decide to handle suffering as a Christian may be one of the most important decisions that we make. And if you're suffering right now, are you suffering well? Are you suffering well? The key to suffering well is not blanket optimism or a silver lining, but it's a resolute hope and trust in God. You may receive terrible news tomorrow, but you have good news for an eternity. Paul says that in that hope, we were saved. In that hope, we were saved, and so cling to that hope. Cling to it. Live in that hope no matter what comes by the hand of God. Consider this great declaration. Peter says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Our hope is kept in heaven. It's there waiting for us. Christian, if you lose your job, you have a hope in heaven. If you lose a loved one, you have a hope in heaven. And if, if you lose your own life, which we all will, we have a hope in heaven. A hope that can never be taken away. It's an imperishable, undefiled, unfading hope. There's another group that's gathered this morning, and it's those who don't yet hope in God. If you're not a Christian this morning, I want to just humbly say to you that your groanings and your sufferings, they're without hope. You're doing this without hope. And, and deep down, I think that you know this. I think that you long for a hope that is imperishable and unfading and undefiled. If you have not yet come to hope in God, consider what we've considered today. Do you want to have confidence that all things are working together for your good? Do you not want that? Hope in God. Do you want to have hope that in the midst of your circumstances, that there's a God who loves you with a steadfast, unceasing love? You know, if you're not a Christian this morning, it's no accident that you're here. I fully, firmly believe that. You are here because you're meant to be. And the beauty of this message is that this hope that we, we as Christians sing about and worship through, it can be your hope. It can be your hope too. The gospel is very simple. What does it call us to do? Believe in your heart that Jesus died for you and rose from the dead and you will receive a living hope 
that can never be taken away. We're all experiencing the same sufferings in this world, Christian, non-Christian, and yet we have hope. And I pray that you would take hold of that hope today. The amazing thing is is that the gospel creates hope where there is none. The gospel creates hope where there is none to be seen, and it's offered to you this morning. Church, I've spoken a lot on hope today, and as the worship team makes their way to the stage, I want to end with one last glorious thought. One last glorious thought. One day, that day that we all wait for with patience, one day we will have no need of hope. Hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? There's coming a day where we will all see our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Our hope will be realized and transformed into beautiful fulfillment. Do we have any idea what that will be like? Do we have any idea what God has purposed Can we ever imagine what God has prepared for us? Our hope fulfilled? Our faith made sight? Church, we we can have an assurance of hope now because one day we're gonna see our hope face to face. One day, it's as certain, it's promised, it's guaranteed, it's planned, it's secured. And until then, until we see our blessed hope, let's be hopeful.